0: I don't know, Shadi, I'm pretty excited about this episode.
1: Oh, you are. I am, I am. Uh, well,
0: yeah, tell me I, about I mean, it.
1: I'm... <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that because, I mean, dear listeners, and I mean, we do have a special episode for you. Um, it was almost epic, I would say. I think it's by the longest we've ever done, and I'll say more about that in a second, but we are joined by the author, Mustafa Akiol. It's an incredibly rich episode, I would say. Many of you might know Mustafa, he's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, author of several books, including his new one, uh, which is called Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. Very good book. The cool thing, though, is that he's also a good friend.
0: Yeah. And on some
1: issues, we're on opposite sides.
0: Well, you guys are. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm I'm just a listener in here. But yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, so the great thing about this episode is I think we we wanted to explore why we're sometimes on opposite sides, why and how we diverge on key issues. We debated all things Islam, liberalism, how to interpret Islamic law in a modern context, whether religion can be rationalized. And one of Demir's favorite issues, which is an important one, whether ideas precede action or the other way around.
0: Yeah, I and, mean, and and yeah. you know, just also to add, while while the book is very much uh, about Islam, uh, you know, it's 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 it the the questions about liberalism and about the role of faith in societies, I think, makes this uh, you know one of the one of these very very timely and excellent episodes. Exactly. Yeah, and and because the episode was so epic, if I
1: can use that word. It reached almost two hours, and um, so what we decided to do was divide it into two parts. Part one will be available, is available to everyone, to all of you, and the second hour will be for subscribers only. That's right. Um, so we would encourage you, if you're interested, uh, to uh, to subscribe by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. We'll also include a link in the show notes if you just want to click on that. Um, And not only will you get members-only episodes every week, you'll have access to all our paid content, which includes a weekly column called the Friday Essay, where Demir and I alternate each week. So um, it's an exciting time for Wisdom of Crowds. So we hope you'll consider uh, joining us and being part of the community. And I suppose now to the main attraction, our conversation with Mustafa
0: Akil. Enjoy. No, uh, Mustafa, I did read a, a very big chunk of it, and Shadi and I actually were discussing it this morning about how to uh, how to structure our conversation. But the truth is, we never structure these things. And you know, after talking about it for <laughs> for about five or so minutes, we realized, um, especially having a, a friend on like this, uh, even though an important and famous friend with an important book, I, I think it's just best that we uh, we sort of uh, see where the conversation takes us. Uh, I think it's a, it's an incredibly rich book, and I, I certainly have. Some specific first-order questions for you, but um, uh, I know that, that that Shadi also, you know, uh, has has uh, questions about about Islam and 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 things more specific than I can possibly even contribute to the conversation. So I think it'll be very rich but i don't know maybe maybe we can start by just uh telling us you 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 can tell us i mean the, the beginning of the book has a has a i think a very compelling um introductory story about part of maybe the the impetus for driving uh for writing the book but maybe you, you can just tell our audience a little bit as an intro what got you basically, to to take on this project.
2: Thank you, Damir, and thank you, Shadi. And I really look forward to hearing what you think about the book, and I'm glad that you had a chance to see it before this conversation. This book was written in two years, but it was built in two decades, maybe three, I can say, in the sense that this book is the culmination of all the issues of Islam and politics and public life and freedom and human rights, that I've been struggling with and dealing with and contemplating about, first in my home country, Turkey, then you know now recently more in the United States. And I do think I'm saying something here, kind of ambitious, and I'm saying, hey, listen, dear fellow Muslims, dear Ummah, we have a problem. We've come to a dead end, as I put it in the epilogue, with our current epistemology and the way we think about religion. And again, not the whole Muslim world, but a big part of it. And we have to rethink some issues really deeply. And to illustrate what I say, I begin with a personal story. As you said, Damir, in the beginning, the introduction chapter, A in Night with the Religion Police, uh, tells the story of how I was arrested in Malaysia in September 2017 by the religion police um, after me delivering a public lecture in Kuala Lumpur arguing for religious freedom. Uh, In that lecture, I had criticized the ban on apostasy, or ridda, as it is called uh, in, in Arabic. Whether it's exactly translated as apostasy or not is a good question, but I will not get in there now. Basically, can a Muslim publicly say, I'm not a Muslim anymore, I lost my faith, now I'm a Christian, or... I'm an atheist or you know, some some other persuasion. Can a Muslim say that safely in a Muslim majority society and just walk away without any legal you know prosecution? Uh, well, the answer to that is no in about a dozen Muslim majority societies in Saudi Arabia or Iran, especially you'll certainly get arrested. you might be given the death penalty, which is generally evaded, but you'll be in 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 uh, certainly jail. And in Malaysia, Malaysians are proudly moderate, so that's cool. And, but that's why they don't send uh, them to prisons, apostates, but they send them to rehabilitation centers. And I argued against that as well. And I said, as a Muslim, I don't want to see people, you know, leaving my faith, but if that happens, we cannot coerce that. And of course, I made several religious arguments there, uh, which is just not coming from me per se, but I relied on expert scholars, some clerics, One of them is Rashid Ganushi, by the way, who has a very, I think, uh, important view on this, uh, a more progressive view. And uh, so I said, religion cannot be policed. And then the religion police arrested me. And I tell the story uh, of that event. Then I highlight that to make my case, which is, uh, I believe the Islamic civilization has to take a step forward in terms of... Giving up coercive power in the name of religion. This has taken place in Christianity. Uh, t- with the Enlightenment, beginning like thinkers beginning with thinkers like John Locke or Pierre Bale and others uh, in the early Enlightenment period, uh, Christianity reinterpreted itself to give up practices like the Inquisition or burning heretics at the stake. And those practices were actually more brutal and more intolerant than what we had in the Islamic world at the time. Uh, but that has taken place in Christianity, and I think it's been a good transformation for Christianity itself and for the rest of the world. In in mainstream Islamic thought, we haven't fully accomplished that. And I think that's necessary because that's bringing the Islamic world to a crisis of religion. In many Muslim societies, there are forces, Islamists or regimes, who want to uphold the coercive of understanding of Islam, there are people who are alarmed about that, so-called secularists, and that leads to endless political disputes and struggles, and uh, Islamist groups compete with each other. Uh, there's a lot of bloodshed in the name of Islam. And and what I emphasize also there is that this is not even related or limited to the groups we call typically extremists, I mean, terrorists like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. I emphasize that they are really, really extreme. So they don't really define the whole Muslim world, not at all. They actually attack fellow Muslims, and they are a a very marginal force, although they're a big problem. I'm saying even in mainstream Sunni or Shia understanding of Islam, there needs to be a reckoning with certain issues of human rights and liberty. Now, when I say this, of course, I know many things will come, and people will say, oh, why are we buying into this Western nonsense? Isn't this a colonialist idea? Why can't everybody have their own values? And so I get into a lot of discussion in the book about whether we need to think universally, or or we need to buy into some moral relativism. So that opens a lot of questions about theology and philosophy in Islam. But you know, uh, that's let's get to that together,
1: if you will. Yeah. So um, Mustafa, I I also want to just tell our listeners that you should really buy this book and i know that i say that when other people who have books come on and i kind of mean it for them too but in this <laughs> <laughs> but in this case i really do mean it and I, I even texted mustafa last night while i was reading it and i was like damn this is this is incredible and the great thing about having a friend on the show is that we can also push back because as it turns out I I like the book a lot, but I also have big disagreements with some of the the starting premises, and I think that's what I think will make this conversation really interesting, and I'll be curious to see how it goes. But, you know, first thing, readers, check the book out. It's called Reopening Muslim Minds, and of course, we'll, we'll include the links in the show notes and all that. You know, and Mustafa, I guess you know, and we've, we've actually been sort of on opposite sides when people put us to debate each other at different events. It's always very friendly, which is great, but we do have different views on this. So I think we can start to maybe unpack where some of those divergences are. But, you know, as I was telling you before we came on, I mean, one thing... I liked a lot about the book is that you talk in a lot of detail, which could otherwise, in someone else's hands, be kind of dense or boring or exhausting. Uh, These the stories about early Islamic history, which are somewhat specialized, and you really bring them to life. And at some time, at some points, it almost felt like a thriller. I was like, I know, I know some of the background, but there were new details, and I'm like, what's going to happen next? And that takes a very special kind of writer. So, um, so with all that, let let's get into some of the meat. I think
2: yes, sure. <laughs> I look I look forward to hearing those too. But thanks for this uh, gig for the book, and thanks for uh, your kind words about it. I'm glad you liked it, enjoyed it, and uh, I know. I mean, I. I since you're a proponent of illiberal democracy, as I would quote it, I would like to hear your disagreements, which I kind of can guess, but, you know, maybe I don't. So I would love to hear
1: more. Okay. To be fair, though, I don't know if I'd call myself a proponent of illiberal democracy, a defender
0: of illiberal democracy.
1: (laughs) I mean, look, okay, I'm putting a strong word here. Okay. I just
2: I was half jokingly, but yeah, yeah, I, know, I know. think you are more lenient than me towards this phenomenon that is called rightly, in my belief, in liberal democracy. Definitely, that's true. Uh, yeah. and, and I think it's fair to say I prioritize liberalism in the classical sense of the word uh, in terms of human rights, individual rights, uh, and you seem to pr- prioritize the democratic process uh, which is which, another which is another view, and we have certain disagreements there. Exactly. Yeah. But, so maybe but the, this book so, is not just about that. I mean, but th- there are aspects of books that might be touching upon that a little bit, right?
1: Yeah. Well, why don't we start with that? Um, the question of the commitment to classical liberalism, and obviously, w- one thing you're trying to do is to look back into the Islamic tradition and finding precedence for, um, not necessarily liberalism, because that word didn't really exist then, but a kind of more humanistic and open and broad-minded approach to Islam and Islamic law. And those are actually part of the tradition. They've just been submerged. And you talk about a particular um, group um, in the early centuries of Islam, the Mautizala, the Matezalites who are in some sense, you know, rationalists, although that we can get back to what being rational really means. But these are people who saw independent reason as a legitimate venue for finding the truth, that it wasn't only revelation that could lead a Muslim or anyone else really to the truth. And in that sense, reason and revelation were not intention. They could both lead to the same ultimate good. But on that, I mean, one concern I have with the kind of retrospective reformist approaches to Islam, where you have more liberal leaning scholars and authors like yourself today, who are, in some sense, I get, sometimes I get the sense that they have found, they've decided what their conclusions are. They think liberalism is good, and they think that a stronger emphasis on reason, freedom, and tolerance is good. So then they take those conclusions, and they basically re-engineer the process, and they go back into the very dense, rich, and complicated context of the Islamic legal tradition, and they find what supports their preconceived conclusions, because they know what they want. If liberalism, classical liberalism is in fact the goal, then you can find what you want in Islamic history that leads you closer to that goal. So maybe let's just start with that, because I think that is one of the criticisms that is, you know, I think, in you know, understandably lobbed against um, people who are trying to um, liberalize, let's say, aspects of the Islamic tradition? How would you respond to that?
2: Well, Sharia, I would respond by saying that you're right. That's what I'm exactly doing. And I'm proudly doing that. And I also justify the way I do it. I uh, Because I do argue that intuitively we humans can make moral judgments about certain institutions in society. Uh so so I mean let's give up this all abstract talk about liberalism I'll give you a concrete example which I actually examine in the book you might have seen that part abolition of slavery I think one of the great things that happened in human history especially in the past few centuries was the abolition of slavery and where did it happen it began in England and France and they started to promote this idea uh by the way there were colonialists which is another you know uh, part of this discussion which is the grim side of the western history of course but they began to promote this idea us did catch up pretty late as we all know because of the slavery in the south which was very brutal and ultimately that idea of abolition of slavery came to the islamic world from the west and uh, some Muslims said, "What is this nonsense? I mean, we don't need to have anything learned from the infidels." And they didn't buy into it uh, because slavery was in the Sharia. Uh, and but uh, it, it was it was possible. It, uh, slavery was abolished after a long battles and you know struggles in the Muslim world. A lot of debates. There was the impact of Western liberalism, but also Islamic liberalism because a lot of Muslims. When they heard the idea about sl- uh, abolishing slavery and everybody should be free, they actually looked back into the scripture. They looked back into the Quran and they saw verses about freeing a neck as a moral, uh, as a moral duty. And they said, yes, yes, we see the roots of this in our scripture. So that is the kind of approach which I find helpful today in other human rights issues. Uh, today, Muslims, Muslim liberals, Islamic liberals, people like me, you know, we look back into the Quran and we find the words, La ikra or no compulsion in religion. We say, yes, there is a basis for religious freedom. Although we know that traditional interpretations didn't give that much credit uh, to that verse, didn't really uphold that verse in that sense. So I believe human values change over time, evolve over time. Today, we live in a world where uh, Hindus are not burning their wives after uh, deaths. You know, that was a tradition called sati. Uh, it's a horrible thing. Um, slavery is at least legally abolished uh, all across the world. And these are gains. And I don't buy into the argument that saying oh, nothing is universal and every culture is good in itself. I rather believe Muslims can learn and, I make the theological argument for that. That's the important thing. I mean, this is not just, I also show that in Islam, I mean, you refer to the Mutezilites. If you will, let me explain what I mean by the, uh, why do I emphasize the Mutezilites in a second. Uh, People who are familiar with Islamic theology, history of Islamic thought, when you mention the Mutezilites, someone can, some of them can say, oh, but Mutezilites were oppressive too. And they can refer to the short period called mihna where their ideology was imposed by the state, which, which is something I severely criticize. But Mutezilites and, of course, the philosophers, uh, people like Ibn Rushd, were important, I think, in early Islam. Because on this big division that I call the the dilemma, they took the universalist view. In other words, they said moral uh, values, good and bad, ethical values – can be discerned by human reason, even if there is no religion. This had two implications. First of all, this means Muslims could learn from other people. They could read Aristotle and learn his moral philosophy and get something out of that, which they did. Uh, And this meant that outside of the Sharia, that is religious law, there is also an ethical realm for which you can look back at the Sharia and offer its reinterpretation. And in the book, I show especially how Ibn Rushd uh, articulated that uh, in some of his writings that are little known today, actually, uh, among Muslims, let alone uh, among others. So, yes, I mean, I'm doing what I, what you're exactly telling me. I am convinced by some values that are called liberal values in the West. I see them in the Quran. I see it is. I see the, a value in not forcing to people to be religious, or uh, or forcing them to be not religious. By the way, too. I see a value in allowing Muslim women to wear the hijab or not wear the hijab. And yes, I look back into the Islamic tradition and I try to find jurisprudential or theological roots which will allow me to make that argument.
1: But 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 I think that okay. So on slavery, to to be against slavery doesn't require being a classical liberal. I mean, you can and most Muslims now, uh, almost all of them oppose uh, oppose slavery without being liberals. Um, so I, I think there are ways to get to these better outcomes without a specific resort to uh, liberal ideas. But I suppose the bigger concern is if you've already you've you've decided if, if 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 you've already decided that liberalism is the best approach that that's fine but the problem is other people could take your similar approach and say hey i believe in a different modern ideology and i'm going to look back into the tr- islamic tradition or the quran and try to find precedents and that way I'll have support for what I want to do. It creates a kind of intellectual chaos because anyone can use the same methodology um, to kind of look back and, you know, sometimes it it can lead to cherry picking. It's not always very consistent. You find the arguments that are perhaps most amenable to your positions. I mean, if you were born in a different context and – um, there's reasons, Mustafa, I guess, that you became liberal. I, I also consider myself um a liberal, but one who's more critical of liberalism, let's say. I wouldn't have been a liberal if I wasn't born and raised in the US. I mean, we're all products of our context, and you had a particular experience in Turkey where you saw the dangers of religious overreach, and that helped contribute to your evolution, if that's a fair assessment. So a lot of these things are are sort of context-dependent.
2: Exactly. And- but what's wrong with that? And <laughs> like, what is, <laughs> of course, exactly. And that's what I'm saying in the book. What I'm saying is this. Uh, I think Islam was articulated in the classical era with a certain jurisprudence and a certain theological paradigm. And actually, it was more diverse, but a certain theological paradigm dominated the scene, and it left behind a certain jurisprudence, which was contextual. Like, Muslims had apostasy laws and blasphemy laws, and nobody in the world a thousand years ago would criticize the lack of free speech in the Muslim world. Those, that value didn't exist. Uh, Muslims were actually often more tolerant than the Christian or other empires at the time. When you look at Byzantine or Sassanid empires, they have very similar approaches to religion. Uh, to they have similar apostasy or blasphemy laws, but but the world has changed, and I think the the mainstream Islamic tradition articulated in a certain context isn't relevant, and not all aspects of it isn't relevant today. So I believe in reinterpretation. And of course, others will agree, others will disagree. This is how things change. So I don't see what wrong is there, me offering a liberal rereading of Islamic sources where other Muslims are saying, no, no, we'll not buy into that. But that's fine. That's how civilizations make progress. That's why diversity of opinion is a good thing. But it
1: does mean that your your reinterpretation has a built-in incentive because... You want, I mean, by definition, as a liberal, you want to see liberal things in your religion because you're also a believing Muslim.
2: Yes, so- but I'm saying the traditional interpretation had that built-in incentive, and that was imperialism. So it's not that there is this context-free, pristine, uh, suprahistorical Islam, which is already perfectly articulated back there with all the pious scholars – without any political incentive, any context, or any culture. And then we, some crazy liberals, come 14th century later and say, nah, let's change it. No, what I'm saying is that the Islamic tradition we have at hand already has a lot of human input in it. Uh, I'm saying the, the certain verses of the Quran were abrogated, rendered ineffective, and these were the verses of the Quran that actually can allow us live peacefully with non-Muslims today, with toleration and freedom, they were abrogated. And that happened not because it was a divine blueprint, but because the Umayyad Empire wanted to expand uh, its, its imperialistic domain, and it needed interpretations like that. So, yes, I'm, I'm conscious that I'm making a li- liberal rereading of Islam, but i'm saying what we have in the islamic tradition is an illiberal reading of islam mm.
1: Mm. I,
0: I, given in that particular context it's not sacred just to jump in here because i think that the the what's really interesting about your book mustafa and you know i mean uh what shadi was saying earlier it's it's very rich and for someone who is absolutely not versed in the in the intellectual and and uh, theological discussions uh, the the tradition it's 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 a it's a great read and it's accessible though you know incredibly rich and, and takes you down these paths, what struck me as generally uh, a non religious gadfly uh, reading these sorts of things, I mean even in this discussion that you guys are having um, is is the question of like what are we talking about when we talk about liberalism and i I, I feel like maybe that 's one way we could we could uh, pull on a string here and and maybe uh, get to some interesting places. I guess what strikes me is that that uh, on the one hand, Mustafa, your liberalism is basically a request for a certain kind of tolerance, and you're reading that tolerance into uh, the theological debates uh, and the philosophy uh, behind Islam, going back uh, back a ways. And you know, when when we talk about liberalism, you know, even all the, the debates that are. are Going around right now in the United States about liberalism and the Catholic integralists or who, who feel like you know Patrick Deneen and people like that who think that that um, there 's a sort of a some kind of poison pill in the in the entire uh, ideology of liberalism, as they would might want to put it, that, that is sort of unraveling our societies. I you know I, I I think they're wrong because I think that the the kind of way that that a minimalist liberalism, which I think in at some points you are espousing, is this idea of a of just basically tolerance. And what's interesting to me about like when you think about liberalism of tolerance is that it's kind of like a superset of any other sort of thing. I think that the the mistake that that the illiberals are making when they make these sorts of arguments is to juxtapose liberalism to you know a kind of a set of of um you know religious beliefs and then you you sort of have it out between the two and as a dichotomy it leads to this kind of polarization but if you if you take like a minimal set a minimal subset of liberalism and say liberalism is at its minimum toleration a lot of this stuff ends up um going away now so so you know I throw that out there for the two of you as you're having this discussion, but maybe to push you a little bit, Mustafa. I think on one level, your book is uh, a request for uh, a reinterpretation to bring in tolerance. But underlying that is something else, which is I do think you have a a sense of the existence of positive rights here. Which I think that if there is a criticism from the illiberal side, is that the. Set of positive rights within liberalism are very expansive and do end up that therefore being in real tension with other sorts of sets of values, I say, that, that, you know, various religions give, give voice to. So I don't know. Can you maybe, maybe, does that make sense as a question? Can you maybe talk a little bit about your, your commitments to a set of positive rights beyond toleration that, and how you, you know, maybe start teasing that apart about like what is, key in liberalism that you would like to come into islam and what parts you think you know you can sort of you know leave by the wayside i guess what i'm saying is like what makes you anything more than like a a truly expansive modern liberal where it sort of slides into its own sort of i don't know is that fair to say but like a religious ideology if you will
2: Deborah, thanks so much for representing the secular realm in the wisdom of crowds. <laughs> and <laughs> that's, that's a, you know, secularism is sometimes an arbiter and that's good, you know, between people who have different religious views. And uh, I'm just joking, but you know, thanks. That's a great, uh, that's a great uh, question. I mean, first of all, yes, this is very good. First of all, I should say in my book, I actually don't speak about liberalism too much. I mean, it's, it's, it, I'm not really writing about, I mean, I have a few allusions to John Locke and, Uh, maybe one, in one paragraph, you can read about Adam Smith and Kant, but my book is about the Islamic civilization, Islamic tradition. And, but I'm alluding, I'm showing that certain doctrines have allowed liberalism, like the idea of a natural law allowed liberalism to flourish in early modern Europe, whereas the idea of a natural law remained, uh, on the margins of Islamic thought. And what that means is a big question. Of course, we can get into that, but let me say one thing. The word liberalism is so loaded and, uh, means a lot of different things. Uh, I come from the other side of the Atlantic and, uh, the, in Turkey, when we meant by liberalism, we always meant what people call classical liberalism. In the US, I see that liberalism is a kind of a more center left political ideology. Uh, of course, a lot of people say where well, no, there is liberalism with a small L or, uh, there is liberalism in, in a broad framework. That's what I'm talking about. And again, I'm not doctrinaire there. I'm not a blind proponent of any political ideology, but I do see great value in a few themes, a few ideas that I think liberalism has championed in the past few centuries. And liberalism itself, by the way, uh, outgrew some of its early Eurocentric biases, for example. Like, what are these ideas? Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and equality before the law. Like, everybody has the same uh, rights before the law. People can speak out their mind unless they're calling for violence. And people have freedom of religion. They can practice, they can wear a niqab, they can wear a hijab, or they can wear a mini skirt or they can be atheist and, and and that's their choice. Now are these to me this is the sum total of liberalism I'm speaking about. And how do, and I do believe these values are conscientiously good. And also it's good for flourishing of society no wonder many muslims escape to liberal societies from the oppressive regimes that they are suffering from uh under under which they're suffering so so i look into these values when we speak about religious freedom does islam allow religious freedom does islam have religious freedom Uh, if you ask this question five centuries ago again it would be a bizarre question because the right question would be Does Christianity have religious freedom? Because Christians were actually much less tolerant. That's why Jews were fleeing from Europe to the Ottoman Empire to uh, find freedom and safety. But tables have been overturned and religious freedom, I think, advances in the Western society. This doesn't mean that everything in Western society is good or I, and I also see liberalism evolving into different meanings. I see something called woke leftism in the US that is, you know, challenging liberalism, liberalism itself has a lot of different interpretations. So my book is not about that. My book is really about, I mean, you put well, Dami, toleration. But toleration based on equal rights, not toleration in the sense that Muslims are superior rulers and they're tolerating Jews and Christians and others as second-class citizens, which was the classical Islamic model, which was not bad for its time, uh, but I think uh, humanity has come to better standards. Basically, I do believe that there is some moral progress in history. Uh, it doesn't mean that everything new is good. It doesn't mean that every new idea is wonderful. Uh, but there is some moral progress. And I, I'm i asking where we Muslims stand uh, vis-a-vis that progress. And I think the, the example of slavery is just a stark example that I discuss in the book, because it, it helps elucidate what we're talking about here.
1: Demir hates moral progress. No, I mean you're triggering I, it, him now. You're, you're
0: not. You're, you're. I mean, I, I'd love to to actually talk more about that because that to me is one of those things that that um, is interesting and I think is is one of the the most uh, you know again for for uh, for an outsider, if you will, reading your book uh, is is the part that that got me really grappling with it. Is is you know you you set it up as as. Um, uh, I think it's like chapter three or something like that is the, the Islam's, uh, Euthyphro, uh, uh, paradox or, uh, the, the, Uthifro Dilemma. The Dilemma. Yeah, yeah the Euthyphro Dilemma. Uh, which is a reference to a famous Platonic dialogue. And it's, it's uh, the, the crux of it being uh, the question of of, of piety. And I, if I remember correctly, Euthyphros uh, has something along the lines of he's prosecuting his father for the murder of a slave or something like that. Um, and he claims it's a pious act. Uh, Socrates asks him, what what is piety? Uh, Euthyphros says something along the lines of piety is uh, that which is dear to the gods. And uh, Socrates challenges him, is it, is it that the gods... Uh, uh, is it something, is it pious just because the gods like it, or is it piety in and of itself something good and the gods therefore like it because it's good? And so, you know, I, it's, it is a a fascinating dilemma, and I think it's a, it's a great jumping off point for your book, but, you know, I, I, I've been reading, uh, Plato recently, a part of this reading group that Shadi and I are in, and the great thing about, uh, Specifically, how Socrates approaches these things, and you know, a lot has grown out of this. But the the question of Plato's forms, you know, this idea of 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 the good, has never been terribly satisfying to me, and in the sense that, and maybe this is part of where where Shadi is coming at the the question of um, the importance of. Uh, I forget how you characterize it, the the sort of top-down approach to religion that where, you know, truth comes from from religion itself and not from rational discourse and not from the individual's ability to perceive it. I've I've always had trouble with with, you know, even even in the republic where the whole discussion is about the concept of justice, I'm not sure that that you really end up in a place where you can say, I understand what justice is. Um, and even even in Euthyphro, you get to this point where you know i think it's a it 's a, it's a great dilemma but it 's not really clear uh, even where where piety comes in and then you know, even in your chapter, you then jump off and talk about uh, uh abraham 's dilemma and and you know god 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 demanding that he that he kill his son um, and that that 's again even within the western tradition the 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 Christian tradition that this is a, a source of embarrassment that that in fact it's it, it gets at exactly. That problem of of faith versus reason going forward, so I don't know. You know, I, it's it's on on the question of slavery, for example, and it's the the, the broader question I have for you again is is you, you seem to have a very strong sense that the role of ideas plays a, a progressive, I don't know what. Um, has a progressive impact on history somehow, but you know, I mean, the 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 question of slavery is is a very complicated one, and not least of which in the United States, I I, I think there's a very compelling case to be made that that uh, there's a very non-ideological and actually very pragmatic and economy-based and uh, less uplifting story about why the Civil War happened. Obviously, you know, abolitionists were true believers, but in in retrospect, abolitionists have come to represent the the whole uh, meaning of, of, of the American civil war and the abolition of slavery, when in fact, uh, it was much dirtier and much more complicated and economics played a big role and it was a power struggle and, you know, it's, it's complicated basically. So to me, that tempers the idea of moral progress. It's true what you say that over time, you know, we, we have, we have developed perhaps a a global kind of taboo against slavery. I don't mean to, to, uh, to completely dismiss that, but I'm, I, I still recoil at the idea of, of kind of, 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 it being moral progress. So I don't know maybe maybe talk a little bit about about the the you know how you see the role of ideas and maybe even the role of your book as a sort of convincing and moving the, the ball forward? How do you, how do you envision this impacting and, and, and you know, moving, moving I don't know, history forwards?
1: And maybe just to add to that, Mustafa, do ideas precede action or is it the other way around? I mean, this is obviously a fundamental question that Demir and I have been debating. Demir, I think, is more skeptical about the causal power of ideas on their own. I mean, I think one of maybe one of the, the main differences in, in, in your and I's perspective is that I think the biggest problem in, in the Muslim world isn't bad ideas or bad theology, but bad politics and bad political institutions. And if we address that, then better ideas, whatever those might be, will follow. And I think your sequencing is a little bit different.
2: Indeed. But, you know, we've come to a very interesting point because I both disagree with you in slight ways and very interesting <laughs> terms. So uh, let me try to uh, address what Damir said. I mean, I'm not, first of all, saying something about the U.S. Civil War. I mean, how the U.S. Civil War fought. Slavery was, of course, one important theme. I'm not a historian of the U.S. Civil War at all. So, But I do see that the abolition of slavery, especially spearheaded by the pious... Believing idealistic abolitionists had some moral content to it. Uh, just like today, Amnesty International cares about people who are tortured in the uh, prisons of Sisi or, you know, Mohammed bin Salman or Iran or whomever. So I think there is some idealism in world history, which does lead to change. Of course, it's always in interaction with material conditions, with economic norms. But by and large, I'm not a materialist, but an idealist. So mm, I don't mm. think in terms of Karl Marx, but maybe more like Max Weber. I do believe ideas influence the world. As a Muslim, I believe that. And as a Muslim, I also believe, yes, there was moral progress in history. And Islam was one of the harbingers mm. of that. I mean, we Muslims are typically proud that before Islam in the jahiliyyah, in uh, the the polytheistic ignorance era, and some Arabs were burying their newborn infants, female infants, to the, to the burying them alive, uh, because uh, because they were not useless. And Islam brought humanity, it brought a more humane view of uh, the human person to Arabia. So that's something I'm proud of. So I'm not going to say uh, this this is not moral progress. Or imagine there were cultures who were uh, committing uh, human sacrifice. And actually, one of the contributions of the Abrahamic Era in human history, some people will tell you that, well, Abrahamists replaced human sacrifice with sacrifice of an animal. So that was, uh, like a, uh, as, as we see in the Abrahamic story. And some people will say that's actually the point in the Abrahamic story. So again, we, these are huge questions we can disagree, but by and large, I do believe that there is some moral progress in human history. I believe my religion, Islam, has contributed to it. But it sometimes comes from other sources, and I think in Islam we need to take a more another moral step forward towards freedom and toleration. Shadi, coming back to your question, which is I think the fundamental, not disagreement but nuance between you and me on whether political problems in the world, Muslim world, uh, are more dominant or problems about the understanding of religion. I I'm certainly with you on the critique of the authoritarian regimes in the especially the Middle East uh, and I'm uh, and I don't buy into those who think that oh if Muhammad bin Salman allows Muslim uh, women to drive freely, Saudi Arabia has become liberal quote unquote although he kills journalists and who criticize them or puts them in jail so that's that is not what I'm talking about here but there's uh, two things on top of that. I don't think political authoritarianism in the Middle East is irrelevant or separate from the religious, quote-unquote, the problematic interpretations of Islam, the religious issue. Because uh, all the autocratic rulers, they rely on clerics who will say to the people, obeying the ruler is your duty, and they will refer to some hadith in Sahih Bukhari or Sahih Muslim. So there is a interpretation of Islam that is very useful to authoritarian power. And maybe you might have noticed this in the book. I actually criticize that heavily in its Islamic, in its medieval forms. And I allude to the way it's being used in uh, places like Saudi Arabia today. And secondly, the second thing I will tell you is that look at Pakistan. Pakistan is not an authoritarian regime in the sense that there is no democracy. No, governments come and go. I mean, the military is always there, so that's a big problem. But it's not that you have a heavily authoritarian regime in Pakistan, but you have another problem. You have militant Islamist groups who want to kill people for blasphemy. And if the government doesn't do that, they will force the government to do that, which shows that besides political authoritarianism, there is the problem, what I call religious illiberalism. Of course, you can say that is that society. It's their nature. It's their culture and everything is relative but i I wouldn't say that because I care about the Ahmedis or the Shiites or the Christians who are really targeted by by that sort of militarism, and that's in Pakistan that's everywhere and I don't think these two issues are although they are separate somehow, they're not unrelated
1: so yeah that's that's a good point i mean so one one thing on that um and this gets us to the question of Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood. You didn't really talk much about the Brotherhood. There were a couple mentions, but I think one—and this isn't a huge thing, but it, I think it's an interesting divergence that we have, which is when you were describing the Ma'tezolites and this uh, more rationalistic approach to the Islamic tradition, and and that word was used as it, as it should be, because that does describe some of these earlier— um, earlier strains in Islamic history. Um, when you were describing them, I thought to myself, it's actually groups like the Brotherhood that are doing pretty much what the old rationalists used to do. So when you say that the anti-rationalist approach is now what's dominating Muslim majority countries, you may be right, like on some popular level. But if we talk specific specifically about um, Islamist movements, I would say this is somewhat counterintuitive, because when people hear the word Islamist, they automatically assume backwards, traditional, going back to the source only, anti-modernist, so on and so forth. It happens to be the case that I'm going through some of the um, the Islamic thinkers of the early 20th century to kind of track this um, for the book that I'm working on. And it's interesting. So to take one example, Rashid Rida, not to go into details about him, um, but, you know, he was one of the precursors of the Muslim Brotherhood and, and was one of the most influential figures um, in terms of guiding the Muslim Brotherhood's emerging ideology. And his position was that if divine revelation is in conflict with clear-cut rational evidence— then reason and rationality take precedence and the revealed text has to be interpreted allegorically. And I compared that to what you had written in your book about the early rationalists, and it's precisely the same approach. And and I think there's a limit to how much I can push this argument that Islamists are basically rationalists. And But I think there is a lot to that. They're not very tied to the classical tradition. They say, go back to the time of the prophet and to um, the founding moment of Islam and forget all of this, a lot of the stuff that happened in between, because that's when Islam became stagnant. And they wanted to basically modernize Islam in the 20th century and make it practical and relevant. And that's why groups like the Brotherhood are dominated by engineers, doctors, lawyers, teachers, bureaucrats, technocrats, because they wanted to make Islam into a hands-on practical religion that could hold its own against the West, basically. So I'm curious how you would – um how you would re- – how you would sort of respond to that, or if you disagree with my characterization.
0: And Mustafa, before before you even jump in there, th- this also gets to, you know, that question of overarching liberalism, whether it's, you know, best described as just tolerance. Because I think the implied thing of like a truly, you know, tolerant, call it overarching liberalism that has space for pluralism of religion is that the public sphere is in fact secularized, at least to a large extent. And maybe that's part of where Shadi pushing you here, is how much, what What do you, what would you like to see on in the public sphere as far as like delimiting, uh, you know, I guess the role of a religion or or how you even see that? Uh, two huge questions. So <laughs> let me get to one. Damien, let me begin with your point,
2: because then I'll love to go back towards Shadi and I think it can go better like that. I uh, Father Newhouse, Richard Newhouse, who was a great thinker on public life and religion, he passed away several years ago, an American Catholic priest. He had this book, The Naked Public Square, and he was criticizing the secularists in the U.S., or they are certainly stronger in France, who don't want to see any religious symbol or argument in the public square. I'm certainly not on the same page with those people. I think that's illiberal. Um, but Father Neuhaus was saying the alternative to that can be the sacred public square where religion dominates uh, public life. and it's hard to argue against that. He was saying the right ideal is the civil public square where uh, religion, irreligion, all kind of public views, uh, all kind of views, worldviews, philosophies, ways of life can be there. And of course you have to manage this because it's not easy but i think it's more healthy because uh, it's it's a kind of model where you wouldn't uh, have the oppression in 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 one way or, the, or one way or the other that's why i value classical liberalism even some libertarian approaches on these issues which will allow people to be who they are without being coerced by the state towards any direction towards being more religious or less religious and and that's precisely because of that I'm very critical of the so-called uh liberalism in France. I don't, they don't even call liberals and they call laicité but which I find illiberal in terms of banning the headscarf or trying to uh, limit the religious uh, visibility uh, in the public square. Now uh Shadi, to your coming back to your position. I mean I basically agree with you that at least some is I mean Islamism is a big spectrum and for example, in the book, I quote approvingly, uh, Ghanoushi and Rashid Ghanoushi of Tunisia. And you know, he's the leader of Ennahda, who's uh, who's now maybe a post-Islamist party, but he's it's he, it's been the main dominant Islam uh, party of the Islamist movement in Tunisia. Islamism is a spectrum, and I do value Rashid Rida, who's actually quoted in my book, and of course his uh, his teacher Muhammad Abduh. Who were actually the first modernists uh, in Islam? I today I would have ideas that are maybe more "quote unquote" advanced than, especially Rashid Rida, but I think they brought certain uh, worldview. And yes, they emphasized rationality more than what was emphasized before them in the mainstream Sunni tradition again, this is a spectrum. I mean, no Muslim will say reason doesn't mean anything. You know, even the Salafis will tell you that you need reason to be Muslim because you need fahm, you need to understand the word of God. But can reason independently of religion establish a political system and that system could be good or not? Well, you have different views. And I, I see a spectrum there. But I do agree with you, Shadi, that Islamists should not be seen as one monolithic problematic group and the most rigid religiously rigid uh, views are coming from not mostly from the political islamists but from the salafis
0: who represent
2: the more far-right ultra-orthodox you know uh, edge of the sunni spectrum one more thing i don't know if you noticed that but i mentioned hassan al hudaybi and his book, yeah, Preachers, Preachers not Yeah,
1: exactly. I know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I show there uh, that there was a split in the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in the let's say 60s, and because one uh, faction of the Muslim Brotherhood was tilted towards Sayed Qutb, who obviously was on the one hand rationalist because he was an ideologue, but he was very much against universalism because he rejected everything that is outside of Islam as a source of value uh and he was of course uh he opened the way which ultimately led to uh violent action violent jihad but hassan al hudaybi wrote this book uh, preachers not judges uh, he saying we are preachers but not judges and i show how he had something to do with the Murji'a theology which is another important theme in my book i mean i don't always speak about the mutezla, i, I speak about these different uh strains in early islamic thought and in mutazla i find The emphasis on reason important, which, by the way, echoed in mainstream Sunni Islam through maturidism too. And, and I, that's why I think it's today, it's not about going back to Muslims becoming Mutezla. That's not going to happen. And that doesn't have to happen, but to understand that we had a diversity of views in early Islam. And from the murjia, which are so-called the postponers, I see a a basis for toleration uh, and to preach the faith, but not to impose it, which is what Hassan al-Hudaybi, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood in the sixties, was actually uh, speaking about.
1: But doesn't this? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm glad you also mentioned the morja. Uh, so postponement, and you know, listeners will know that I talk about the postponement of um, of judgment quite a bit, um, which which has you know important precedents in Christian in Christian thought and theology, but also as as we're seeing here in Islam. But I mean, does, but but I mean, doesn't it complicate the argument a little bit if it turns out that many Islamists are rationalists and and you quote them approvingly, some of them in your in your book? If they come to power, they're not going to promote the liberalism that you prefer. That would take some of these societies in a you know, let's say a somewhat different direction. I think that's fair to say. Which is just to say that rationality and reason are somewhat in the eye of the beholder. Even if we take more seriously these principles, they can lead to either more conservative or strict Islamic outcomes, and they can also lead us to more progressive or even liberal outcomes. So even if we follow your path that you're proposing, it doesn't necessarily lead to what you seem to really want in the end.
2: Well, uh, Shadi, rationalism doesn't necessarily lead to liberalism. <laughs> you know, it can lead you to Marxism. It can lead, it's, it led some people to fascism. And I mean, there was a logic to fascism. It was a flawed one, but, uh, so, uh, I mean, you, by rational arguments, you can also come up with a, a authoritarian political model, uh, of, of many sorts. Actually, but even, French, but even, yeah. So. The thing is, the, the emphasis on reason is about whether we can reinterpret the Sharia. I mean, I, I quoted Vial Halakh. I mean, I think you've been reading his book lately and, uh, on, yep. on, my, on my chapter about the Sharia. You know, there are clear injunctions in the Quran and, and, and the Sunnah. Uh, and of course, the Sunnah, whether, how much we trust have for the Hadiths or not, that's a huge issue. I'm not getting there. But, you know, there are sayings, uh, narrated or alleged sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, huge Hadith collection, and then there are the words of the Quran. To me, when I emphasize reason, uh what I want to get there is how much room we Muslims in the 21st century have today to reinterpret these injections. Uh, for example, uh on the Issue of, I mean, I, I discussed corporal punishments. I don't know if you've seen that part, but yes, the Quran gives chopping of hands uh, as a punishment to theft. But I say, well, if he, so one way of seeing is this, this is the divine commandment, so you have to obey this. So this is the divine commandment theory that comes from one edge of the, or one horn of the Unifor Dilemma. But another way of saying this is that let's look into the context of this. Oh, pre-Islamic Arabs were doing the exact same thing. So maybe the Quranic legislation had something to do with context. And maybe we can today, since we live in a very different world, we can look into the intention. But but we so we can punish the theft by sending people to prison maybe and not necessarily through using corporal punishment. So that is the... Reason element, uh, w- how much room do we have to reinterpret the Sharia? When you come to about a political system, uh, I prefer liberalism, and you, in the rational realm, you need a discussion about liber- liberalism. How much? W- what about the Islamists? I mean, your question was originally about that. Well, again, which Islamists? I'm not alarmed by Ennahda at all, which is Tunisia's Islamist party, and actually, I see Tunisia as a model. And thanks to their rationalism and pragmatism, and has been able to make a secular constitution, uh, the most liberal constitution probably ever, uh, in the, in the Arab world that Turkey has never able, been able to do. Uh, so I'm not alarmed by the Islamism of Rashid al-Ghanoushi and Tunisia, which is actually growingly becoming a Muslim democratic position, a post-Islamist one. But if you, when you speak of Islamists, what about Hizb ut-Tahrir? Well, his are Islamists. They will say democracy is kufr. Uh, they will say we need a global caliphate. So that's the other end of the spectrum. So, uh, I agree with you that Islamists should not be seen as one monolithic group. I certainly am very much against certain kind of Islamists. Others I believe should be, uh, should have, do have a potential in uh, advancing freedom or democracy or human rights in the Muslim world. Uh, and and I emphasize reason precisely as a realm on which we have we can have these discussions in the Muslim world.
0: Can can you, can, can you guys talk a little bit about the uh, again? Consider me a, a, an engaged listener and and uh, out of my depth, but talk a little bit more about because what I think is interesting about this last. Back and forth between you two is the question of the state, and uh, you know how that is shaped by political parties, and you know what what red lines are. So I don't I don't know the specifics of how uh, Tunisia after the Arab Spring has developed and and how the constitution works, Mustafa. Maybe you can walk us through it, and then you know Shadi, tell us tell us where where you think uh, you know it's. Is it too liberal? I mean, or is there a space where it could be less liberal? I mean, I know sometimes, Shadi, you come on the side of, of more majoritarianism being okay. Does the Tunisian constitution have excessive protections for uh, minority positions? Is it, I mean, I guess walk me through that because that seems to me part of the debate between you two is, is, is the state. And, and I, I know, Mustafa, your book is not about that, but I mean, I think it's, it's, it's coming out in this discussion a little bit. So I don't know. Maybe maybe that's a, a way to jump into that.
2: Well, that's a, a good way to get into the perennial discussion between me and Shadi on <laughs> whether <laughs> democracy comes first or human rights comes first. Um, I mean, I, I, I examined the Tunisian constitution, I think, in 2013, if I'm not wrong, when it was drafted. So, I mean, I, uh, I know it's, uh, there, it honors Islam as a state religion, but it has strong guarantees for uh, individual rights uh and and minority rights and it doesn't uh, introduce the sharia as a source of legislation uh to, to to my mind the ideal place of sharia in the modern world is is the place of halakha in the modern world orthodox jews live by the halakha by their own choice as individuals and communities but they don't aspire for Halakhic states even if they do some people do in israel but that's a small minority. Uh, and I think that should be the role of Sharia in in Muslim uh, pop, Muslim life, religious life. Of course, the Sharia can also be an inspiration for justice, a, a sense of rights about the ruler. So it can be a philosophy of justice, which I also very much find important. Uh, but but so t- Tunisian constitution in that sense, to me, when I looked at it, I'll look at it again. I mean, for a broader assessment, uh, was a very uh, Important step forward. And it was an important step forward also because precisely it was not a majoritarian constitution that we saw in Egypt when and ultimately triggered the bloody military coup uh, of 2013. Uh, or the majoritarian constitution of type Erdogan in Turkey, uh, which passed uh, a few years ago, uh, which again, uh, let's say a constitutional, huge constitutional amendment which was, again, majoritarian. It was only one party and its allies versus the others. Tunisians have been able to do it with broad national consensus, and I think it was an important achievement. Of course, Tunisia has huge problems today, from economy to uh, some people longing for the old regime. Uh, I I know those things, but I think it showed that Islamism can be in the political system, and it can come to a consensus with the secularists. That's how I read it, but I don't know how Shadi reads it.
1: Yeah, well, Mustafa, I'm glad you mentioned the point about how your ideal place for Sharia is comparable to the to the place of um, halakha in um, in Jewish contexts, and that's where I think I'll bring up a bigger issue. That I got I get the sense in your book, and it's not just a sense. I think you you say this outright that Christianity and Judaism, um, even somewhat belatedly, I mean Islam, as you as you mention and emphasize. Was ahead as a civilization early on, but then things changed. But that Christianity and Judaism were able to make their peace with first, um, independent reason as, as a source, um, for finding the truth and not just revelation, but also this led to over time a Jewish enlightenment, um, and also a, a Christian, uh, enlightenment, which ended up Uh, reducing Christianity's role in public life. But if that is in fact a goal that you see for Islam and Muslims, I think it raises perhaps the most fundamental question that if Islam becomes like Christianity and Judaism and follows their path, then it ends up being less distinctive it ends up being like the other two monotheistic religions which is maybe what some people want that they would want to see that convergence because they think that enlightenment was the best thing that could have happened to both Christianity and Judaism but others would say that this would this would basically render the islamic idea null and void it would essentially dilute the islamic content of islam um, so thoroughly that it would be something other than what it always has been. And then it will cease to have the kind of appeal, which I think it does have until this day, which is that it isn't like the other religions. It is quote unquote more aggressive. It is more resistant to secularization. It is more, let's say, in your face to use a pejorative term, but you know, um, it's more present in people's lives. And sometimes that can be a little bit overbearing. But in any case, there seems to be broad support among Muslim-majority populations for Islam continuing to play this central role in public life and politics. But what you're suggesting would lead to a very different outcome, um, if, if you see it to its logical conclusion, which is just Muslims doing their thing, and it's not really as much present in public life. There's a liberal constitution, a liberal political system. People do what they will. And, um, I think that's the real implication. And I don't know if that's something that a lot of Muslims, maybe, maybe you and you and I, maybe not as much, uh, you know, I, I actually want maybe some of those things. You certainly want m- most of those things or all of those things, but, um, that's what the implication is.
2: Well, Shadi, first of all, yes, I very much. Argue that what has happened in Christianity with the Enlightenment, with the early Enlightenment, uh, let's say the John Locke path, is exactly what we need in Islam. And in, in in Judaism, Moses Mendelssohn is the historic figure there, which introduced or initiated the process called the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, which allowed Jews to be uh, come out of their let's say uh, strong communalism and be equal members in in european society unfortunately that was derailed horrifically because of fascism and nazism anti-semitism in europe and uh and uh, that is actually one threat i see for the future of the world again that being repeated this time against muslims in in the west so uh there's no guarantee that the future will be better but yes uh, i basically do have references to the jewish enlightenment and the christian enlightenment and i see a gain there now Is Islam a more attractive religion because it hasn't gone through these processes? Well, let's see. I mean, is Islam an attractive religion because we have blasphemy laws and every month somebody gets killed or jailed in Pakistan because supposedly they blaspheme against Prophet Muhammad? Sometimes they're just Shiites and they supposedly blasphemed against the Sahaba. They just have different opinions about the Sahaba. I mean, is Islam a more attractive religion because apostasy is a crime and not just even real apostates but muslim intellectuals who have different views can be jailed uh threatened they have to flee their country to europe uh i don't think so and i'd rather think these coercive measures that i discuss in my book uh and again i am only criticizing the coercive measures shadi i'm not saying that muslims should not be pious and they should not care about their religion. That's not, not what I'm saying at all. I'm just speaking about the coercive measures in the Sharia that leads to social illiberalism. And, uh, now if you keep those things, Islam will be more attractive and more, will be more proud. Some people as Muslims. Well, probably that will, that obviously makes some people happy. But I see something else, which is, which was never considered by our classical lemma, which is, these measures actually are leading to the greatest wave of apostasy in the history of the Islamic civilization. There's a huge number of ex-Muslims. Uh In Turkey, there's a huge rise of deism. Turkish. There are so many Turkish youngsters. I don't know the numbers. There's no poll, but that's the talk of the day. They're saying, I'm not a Muslim anymore. I'm a deist. I'm giving up on Islam. Why? Because they're fed up with all the ugliness they see in the name of Islam. And in Turkey, again, that ugliness is... From the Turkish context, which is still quite mild and modest compared to those other things. Uh, it is leading to Islamophobia. So, uh, you can be an illiberal religion when the whole world is illiberal and probably that's fine. But you, if you are the only illiberal religion, uh, or at least you are more the only one compared to your Abrahamic sisters, uh, you will have unprecedented problems of losing your believers attracting attention and people uh, looking at you and not seeing any ethical values that should inspire them which is what i believe islam should be about but rather something horrific that they should escape from
1: well that's a wrap for round one Hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, We still have a lot more uh, that we discussed with Mustafa Akyol. So we hope you'll consider joining us for part two, which is available for subscribers. Uh, If you want to subscribe, you can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. We hope you'll consider joining us for the second hour where our debate with Mustafa Akyol continues and we delve even deeper into the big questions, and we know you want to hear the answers. So um, we hope you'll join us for that. Bye-bye.